This episode brings us to the end of our discussion of race. In the last episode, we looked at uh, the history of race in the American South up until the American Civil War. We looked at the American Civil War just a little bit. Uh, Again, that is not the focus of this particular class, and there are much better resources out there, uh, including entire podcasts that are dedicated to the history of the American Civil War. So I'm going to skip past that. What I'm going to do in this particular episode is much the same as what I did in the last episode. And that is, I'm going to give an overview of the history of race in the American South from this, uh, the American Civil War up to the present. I'm just going to do uh, do this in very broad strokes. Again, the reason being that there are other resources out there that you can use to learn more about this information uh, with just me being able to give you, again, those major signposts to help walk you through that information. So let's get started. This seems like a good time to give a general reminder that when we're talking about history and culture, oftentimes we talk in very broad strokes. And that means that any instance where I say that here's the kind of event that happened, you always have to know in the background of your head that there are likely to be exceptions to that particular thing. Uh, That's just kind of how history and culture works. And again, I I note that here because some of the things I'm going to talk about in this episode are very broad categories. That does not mean that they're universally true for everyone at all times, which is why it's always important to hear individual stories as well. So let's think about how the uh, South began to segregate and, uh, you know, after the American Civil War. What I've found over the years is that people have this very broad sense of that segregation and that process. They have this sort of idea that the American Civil War ended and that a light switch just flipped and uh, we moved from the American Civil War into the Jim Crow era. And that's not quite the case. There were several steps and stages in there. And we need to understand those, again, in very broad terms. Uh, one one place that I can point to that might give you some food for thought it, it would be the railroads. Uh, the railroads ran from the north to the south. And, you know, this is the north is not segregating like the south is. The south is both self-segregating to some degree, but also beginning to uh, segregate with regulations. You know, we get to Plessy versus Ferguson and, and things of that nature. But again, that that self-segregation, that actual seg- actual segregation is taking place. So how do you deal with that on the railroad? It's kind of like being on an airplane in you know, the modern world and, and having to land the airplane at an invisible line, rearrange the entire cabin, and then take off the airplane again and continue on your journey. Um, that's the logistical you know, situation that people faced if they traveled on a railroad from the north to the south or from the south to the north. And it gives you food for thought because, again, it shows that, you know, there are interactions between the north and the south and that these interactions, uh, because of the the different um, ideas of how people should behave in those two different locations, which, you know, is, is a way of saying uh, segregation, um, influences actual infrastructure and influences, again, behavior in public spaces. So let's start to look at how this, you know, the segregation took place and how we arrive uh, to the world that we live in today. In order to understand how we get to that situation, we have to, again, go back to the economy. After the American Civil War, the South went through a period of economic collapse. And this is because everybody's looking around saying, you know, how do we interact with each other? How do we uh, move forward? And there was some goodwill uh, there, there for a period of time. Now, I 
mentioned this before, and I'm going to try to work my way through it in, in a way that is clear um, and that doesn't give too much credence where credence doesn't need to be given. But think about how whites and blacks interacted prior to the American Civil War. When they did interact, oftentimes it was in the same general location. So they did have a close proximity to each other. Again, that proximity was a breeding ground for things like rape that I've talked about in the prior episode. Uh, but this means that they did have those interactions. And so after the Americans of War, I had mentioned just you know a, a second ago that self-segregation started to take place. People began to drift apart. Uh, understandably so, because if you are a, a black citizen now, you're looking around saying, you know, look at these white institutions. And I, I had mentioned this in the gender episode as well. Look at these white institutions. Do I want to uh, fold into one of these these institutions? Do I want to go to the white church or do I want to go and you know participate in my own church? And so locations like that, people begin to drift apart. Um, in addition, again, there's a more active style of segregation that's taking place. Uh, what would later become, you know, certain days of the week in which whites could shop and blacks could shop on different days uh, or attend things like a circus or a fair. Uh, those those days were, you know, clearly delineated. So that, that segregation is taking place in several different ways during this time period. And I emphasize that because, again, uh, from, you know, roughly the end of the American Civil War up until the very end of the 19th century, People are looking around saying, okay, you know, like let's let's found some agricultural efforts and let's all work together and, and see what we can figure out. And then you get to the late 19th century and there's a, an economic, a second economic collapse. And during this particular time, um, some of the white politicians begin to look around and they're saying, you know, oh, we, we don't have any money and we don't, you know, we're struggling. Whose fault is that? And they start to blame black citizens at this time. Um, you had individuals like uh, uh, Ben Tillman. And Ben Tillman was a politician, and he you know, is a good example because he starts to blame African-Americans uh, for the ills of, of whites during this time period. And uh, uh, you have a new generation at this point of white people. And that's why I mentioned just a second ago that you know the interactions prior to the American Civil War were oftentimes closer during this time, because people have started to segregate, you, you start to get to a point where people don't have the kind of interactions with each other that they would have in prior generations. And so what happens then is when white politicians come along and they start demonizing uh, black citizens, that's, uh, that's kind of an easy scapegoat because some of these people have not had interactions with each other to this point, and uh, they're looking for somebody to blame, and it's I, I tend to equate it like the uh, the Jewish people during um, the Nazi rise because the Nazis are blaming Jews because Jews don't have necessarily the power to be able to fight back. And it's the same situation here. So they are being blamed for something that uh, is not their fault, but that they are easy scapegoats for. Uh, politicians are starting to turn ugly as they, uh, they seek re-election and they're looking for scapegoats. And this is one step in that process. But there are some others, and let's look at those as well. When we looked at literature in a prior episode, I talked about how certain literary, uh, certain authors will present the history of a, of a region or a culture in a way that they wish to remember it, not necessarily how it actually is. And I want to go back to Margaret Mitchell, because Margaret Mitchell in uh, Gone with the Wind 
actually addresses the next thing I want to talk about, which is the black codes. The black codes were um, a way to re-enslave African-Americans after the American Civil War. And the way it would work is essentially a, a black citizen would be charged with a crime, usually something like vagrancy, because they would just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And an authority figure would come along and say, hey, you know, do you, do you have a job? Oh, no, I'm actually looking for a job. Oh, well, then this means you're a vagrant because, you know, you, you're outside and you don't have a job and, you, you know, you can't clearly identify that. Or sometimes they would have a job and they would just get charged and, with some crime and thrown into jail. They would uh, charge them with, you know, again, whatever crime, and then they would charge them a, a physical, like a, a fee. But it was a fee that was just high enough that they couldn't pay it. And so they were, they were supposed to pay this fee off. And they, uh, to pay the fee off, they would have to go out and work a job. And the job would pay them just enough to, to make them fall shy of being able to pay it. Plus, they would have to pay their other expenses, food and things like that. So it became this sick game of, you know, putting these people into jail and then forcing them to work um, for a debt that they could never pay off because it perpetually kept growing all the time. And in these situations, um, oftentimes they were put into perilous circumstances, working in a mine or working um, in extreme heat or working for the person um, whom they used to be the slave for. And so, yes, you, you know, you would, uh, these, these authority figures would capture, again, these black citizens, put them back into the fields um, on a sort of a chain gang or something of that nature, and they would essentially be slaves all over again. Um, there is a, a, a great book out there that tells this story and tells these circumstances. It's called Slavery by Another Name. It's by Douglas A. Blackman. And, and I might be saying that last name wrong, and if so, I apologize, but um, it does a great job of explaining this and uh, documenting it and documenting the, the heinous things that happened during this particular time period. And I highly recommend it. Um, so again, in essence, you have, again, what are called the Black Codes, and this is an effort to re-enslave African-Americans during this time period. So that's a factor as well. This is something, again, that starts after the American Civil War. It's something that's noted and gone with the wind. Um, and the willful disremembering, I, I guess we could call it, that Margaret Mitchell uh, demonstrates all of the Southerners in the book are horrified by this. Uh, they all condemn Scarlet because she uses these codes in order to uh, run one of her factories. And she has a, a foreman that runs the factory and it's going to make money for her. And um, even even Rhett is like, you know, you can't do this. This is wrong. You shouldn't do it. Um, but she persists and she, you know, she continues with it. But everybody condemns her. I, I wish I could say that they were true. But I think that uh, in the majority of the cases, most people either just turned a blind eye to it or they used it for their own personal gain in the way that I had just described a second ago. So again, this is a re-enslavement of people under the legal system uh, that persisted after the American Civil War. Okay, that brings me to one other factor that I'm going to bring up, and that is that the North and the South have started into a process of rough reconciliation during this time period. Uh, the Spanish-American War has happened, and the Spanish-American War, we're just going to settle the causes and things like that to the side, but this is one of the, the first conflicts that emerged um, at the national level after the American Civil War. And uh, quite frankly, I mean, I, I'm just going to grossly oversimplify it, and I would encourage you to go and do more research on this, but um, it, it essentially allowed the North and the South to 
kind of sing Kumbaya and say, hey, we're going to start to get along again. But it also was uh, emblematic of some of the problems that would begin to emerge even going past this particular point. And that would be that uh, the North during this conflict embraced Southern soldiers. Southern soldiers, however, did not embrace Black soldiers. And uh, the Northern opinion of this was, uh, that's just the South. It's what it is. But that became, again, emblematic. The North was heavily involved in the South uh, for a long period of time until basically they just kind of like, okay, well, we'll, you know, we're getting along again. Everything seems to be working out. We're not going to put as much effort into it. And I would say that some of this culminated into specific instances. Like if we look at um, the race riot in Wilmington at the end of the 19th century, uh, wherein, you know, the, there's a political upheaval and again, a race riot, um, I think that that's a good example of the South reasserting its own political ideologies over um, the North who had uh, buoyed up other candidates that were more in line with Northern principles. And that's a, a really fancy way of saying that Republicans were in charge for a period of time in the American South until the Democrats reasserted their control. Uh, I'm gonna briefly segue into that just for a quick second. Yes, the Democrats were the party of the South for a long period of time. Um, the uh, the Republicans were the party of the North. If you uh, have kind of been you know listening and paying attention, then you'll know that Abraham Lincoln was a Republican, uh, and that his election was what had precipitated the American Civil War in the first place. So again, you have that circumstance where there's this political landscape taking place, and uh, uh, you know people are not happy about the North's involvement in the South, and they're starting to um, to shuck off that particular tradition, I guess is what we could call it. So I want to talk a moment about the Black response to all of this, because, you know, I, I've concentrated on the politics and, you know, some of the economic situation and whatnot, but there was indeed a Black response. So I, I mentioned just a moment ago the uh, race riot in Wilmington, well, just three years prior to this, the uh, was the first delivery of Booker T. Washington's Atlanta Compromise speech. And this uses uh, a story in order to brilliantly uh, go about pacifying the growing resentment that was coming from people like you know, Pitchfork Ben, Ben Tillman, the guy that I mentioned just a moment ago, uh, and the economic collapse that's beginning to take place at this time. And it also uh, seeks to embrace some of, and, and you know, I'm going to say this cautiously, but seeks to embrace some of the, the discrimination that, or excuse me, the uh, segregation that's taking place at this time, in order to, in the long term, uh, overcome that. Now that again, this is my understanding of it. There, somebody else might listen to this and say, well, no, okay, actually, what he intended is this, but I'm going to talk about that, and and I'm going to do it from the speech itself. So in this speech, he says, a ship lost at sea for many days, suddenly sighted a friendly vessel. From the mast of the unfortunate vessel was seen a signal, water, water, we die of thirst. The answer from the friendly vessel at once came back. Cast down your bucket where you are. A second time the signal, water, send us water, ran up from the distressed vessel and was answered, cast down your bucket where you are. A third and fourth signal for water was answered, cast down your bucket where you are. The captain of the distressed vessel, at last heeding the injunction, cast down his bucket, and it came up full of fresh, sparkling water from the mouth of the Amazon River. 
to those of my race, says Booker T. Washington, who depend on bettering their condition in a foreign land or who underestimate the importance of cultivating friendly relations with the Southern white man who is their next door neighbor, I would say, cast down your bucket where you are. Cast it down at making friends in every manly way of the people of all races by whom you are surrounded. Now, that's why I said that, you know, to some degree, he is embracing the segregation. But it, to me, this is with the long-term goal of overcoming discrimination. He gives this uh, illustration because he's saying, rather than leaving, which, by the way, some people are doing at this time, there is a, a mass migration of individuals who can afford it uh, to other places in the country, places like Chicago, and uh, from African-American individuals. They're, again, going to places like that. But he's saying, don't leave. Stick it out. Hang out here, right? Cast down your bucket where you are. Uh, plant your roots and, and plant them deep. And, uh, you know, continue in the way that, that, uh, that we're doing right now, right? His goal in this speech, he goes on to say, is that we can be separate as the fingers on the hand, and yet uh, we can work together. In essence, but I would also point out in this image that uh, just like the fingers on a hand, they could work together or they can turn into a fist. And I think that that's one of the subtle warnings that he's giving in creating this imagery in his speech. Now, according to, I guess we could call it legend, when he gave this speech, he received a standing ovation and uh, some of the, the Black members of the audience you know, fell down in the aisles and were crying. And it's a very popular speech and he toured all over the place. And that's because his solution, as you can see again from the imagery that he uses, was uh, to have individuals uh, have an economic solution, right? Let, let's go about it. Let's, let's work hard and we'll earn. And eventually white people will have to respect us because we've earned and we didn't leave and we work together as you know, fingers on a hand. So hold that image in place because I'm going to talk about one of his critics. So fair warning here, I, I think I may be pronouncing the name wrong, but this is the way that I've always heard it. So if you're listening and you have additional knowledge about this, uh, please forgive me. One of his critics was W.E.B. Du Bois. And Du Bois essentially comes along and says, wow, this is a really great idea. Like we should earn and we should do all these things. Um, and he watches this progress for a number of years. And what happens inevitably is that black citizens earn and then they purchase something and then uh, white resentment sets in. So you may have a, a prosperous citizen who has earned something and you may have sort of a ne'er-do-well um, white citizen who looks at the, the growing um, prosperity of the black citizen and says, that's wrong. That person shouldn't have that because I don't have that. Now, again, the white citizen might not be able to or willing to put in the work to earn those things, but that also the other side of this is what I talked about with the other and some of the, the earlier podcasts in this particular segment of the podcast series is that uh, you know the sense of identity comes from that. The sense of identity for this white individual is that the white individual, no matter how little that person wants to work, at least feels like you know he is better than the black citizen. And so... That resentment grows, and then they, you know, that white citizen or other white citizens working together find a way to take that uh, that content away from the person who has earned it. And so W.E.B. Du Bois looks at this and says, you know, they're always going to find a way to take it away, and that's because they have the positions of power, 
and our society and culture. So if we want to really move beyond this, what we need to do is we need to attain those positions of power as well. And we need to become doctors, lawyers, police officers, firefighters. We need, we need to take up these positions because that's the way that they're going to respect us. And that is the way that we're going to protect our own interests as a people. And uh, this is his argument that he presents. Uh, he talks about that in the Souls of Black Folk, uh, but he also talks about it in a specific part of that called the uh, On the Wings of Atalanta. And this is, it's a subtle jab at, um, at Booker T. Washington's speech because this is the Atlanta Compromise speech. And in this classic, uh, this classic presentation of, of uh, the Greek myth, you have a, a woman whose father said, you know, you can marry my daughter if you can outrun her. And she's a, a very fast runner. And so, you know, all these people try to outrun her and they can't. And then they're put to death because that was the consequence of not beating her. Uh, and then, you know, one particular person comes along and he starts to race her and he throws golden apples. And, you know, it's a little, it's, well, it is misogynistic because, you know, everybody knows that a woman can't resist going and getting a golden apple, which is ridiculous, but that's the way the myth goes. So she becomes distracted by the golden apples and he is able to win and then he's able to marry her. And that's essentially what the boy is saying is, hey, uh, Washington, I, you know, I think you're you're getting lost here and you're getting lost here because um, you're focusing on the short-term solutions rather than the long-term goal. And so that was his critique. We need education, not just, you know, uh, working hard. We need to have citizens that attain these positions because they get that education. And so that's his solution to this particular problem. And all of the things that I've described to this point begin to pull us up into what we might think of in very broad terms um, would be the sort of present. We get to the Jim Crow era, which Jim Crow is not a, a particular person. It's not like a politician. Um, this was a caricature that was presented as a, in a minstrel show. Uh, oftentimes, white performers were dressed in blackface. If, again, you've kind of been paying attention and thinking about all the things that I've said, uh, you don't want to put... If you own the building, you know, you own the show, you don't want to put a black performer on stage. You want to you know, put white people on stage in blackface because uh, the person on stage speaking has the power. And if somebody can get up and entertain other people, then that means that they have uh, power that others may not be able to recapture. And by the way, that's a, a subtle nod to as we move forward into music in the next episodes, we're going to look at uh, the way in which, you know, white people were worried about that. So this is what Jim Crow is. Again, Jim Crow is just this rough um, approximation of all the laws and regulations and things of that sort that uh, would separate individuals. Um, but aside from those laws and regulations and the official system, and, and, you know, and again, I mentioned Du Bois' uh, response just a second ago, hey, we need to put people into that system to save, you know, to, to fix this problem. Aside from all of that, um, there were other methods that white people used as well in order to uh, to keep and see air quotes on this society and culture in line. One of those methods was lynching. And uh, lynching is is a very difficult thing to talk about, very much like the um, the slave trade we talked about in the last episode, but it, it is worth confronting. Lynching was not done by a crazed mob of individuals. It was done um, in a quiet, oftentimes, uh, oftentimes quiet, deliberate way. Uh, people would 
you know, get together because there had been maybe you know, days or weeks of agitation between the, the two races. Um, oftentimes it was precipitated by a rumor of a rape uh, of a, a, a black male raping a white woman. And that was what it would take in order to, you know, get all the, the white individuals together to, uh, to commit a lynching. And by the way, I want to at least mention and point out here that one of the reasons that uh, white society and white culture was somewhat worried about um, rape as a crime, I would say, is because they were aware of this being you know, something that happened in the past. So there's that kind of like, oh, you know, this is something that we did and now we're worried about it happening to us in turn. So there's that you know sort of ugly double standard that takes place. All right. But to, to come back to it. The, the mob would come together, they would go and find the uh, unwitting victim who uh, could not get away, and that person would be oftentimes tortured um, and then taken to a location where they would be strung up in a tree on a rope. When all was said and done, the, the body was left on display. Um, oftentimes the body was mutilated, and the reason is, is because people would take souvenirs from from the body. So if you've ever been in a relative's house and in the back of the house, you find a body part um, in a jar or something like that. I haven't had anybody tell me yet that that has happened, but I would say that, you know, that's an indication that somebody in your family had participated in this in the past, uh, that that's what that would boil down to. Um, this is again, a heinous, awful crime. I do want to mention though, on uh, on the same note that there is now a memorial called the Peace and Justice Memorial Center in Montgomery, Alabama. And if you haven't heard this of this before or seen it, uh, I want to encourage you to go and look up images of it because to me, it is very, very powerful. What they've done is as you're walking toward the building, um, you can see in the distance, it looks like there are all these columns inside the building because there's like a low wall and then, you know, the slight open space and then there's like a, a roof that you can see and there's all these columns and then there are like um, posts sticking out of the tops of the columns. But when you actually enter the building and you walk in, you can see that none of the columns touch the floor. And so this is emblematic of what I just described a second ago and inscribed on each one of the columns um, would be the number of people who were lynched inside of uh, various counties. So there, there is a testament to this, and, and I, I have not had the, uh, the privilege to go and visit this particular location yet myself, but I do uh, plan on it at some point. COVID has derailed this for me, but um, I want to encourage all of you again to, to look this up and to go visit it yourselves as well. And this brings us up to the present and um, some other situations that we might be familiar with. Ranging from the time of Plessy versus Ferguson, which again is at the end of the 19th century, really up until the mid uh, 1950s, uh, we have a long period of time where Jim Crow really takes hold in the American South, and uh, it's a long fight to be able to move back and above and beyond that. Brown versus the Board of Education finally challenges this, and uh, th this is the, one of the first steps to start to move beyond it. Now, this is the first step. It is not a solution. It is just a, a, a tangible first step. But around about the, the same time, there's another cultural touchstone uh, that takes place, and I, I think it's worth mentioning as well. And this is the, um, the Emmett Till story. Now, 
you know, I've talked about some fairly graphic things to this point, but I, I think that this one is above and beyond even those. And so if you you don't, if you struggle with graphic stories, I would say, you know, maybe pause it here or skip forward a little bit. Emmett Till lived in the North. He lived in uh, Chicago and um, he came to the South to Mississippi to visit some family. And while he was here, uh, you know, he, he kind of, possibly again you know this is a he said she said kind of thing but there are some underlying facts uh, that i cannot possibly unpack right now and trying to retell the story in brief but he, he had possibly bragged about going on dates with white women to uh to some of the the other young men that he was there with and he whistled at a a white woman at the the local grocery store where they were hanging out uh, this white woman's name was carolyn bryant and so he whistled at her and she was married and she went home and told her husband and um, the the person that Emmett Till was staying with, you know, knew that something bad might happen. But uh, some time passed and, you know, Emmett just kind of like, oh, OK, well, I dodged that one. Well, they came for him in the middle of the night and they they came into the house where he was and they just pushed their way in and they took him. And we're talking about a very young man. Um, he was age 14 at this particular time. They took him out. Um, they, as I mentioned before, with lynching, they tortured him. Um, in torturing him, they they then after uh, took him out and threw him into the river um, with an object around his neck to, in order to get him to sink to the bottom. Eventually, he you know he floated back to the top. They found him. Um, the, they began to question you know the husband and, and some of his friends. They actually went to court. And they found the husband and his friends not guilty of his murder. Um, they, these individuals even joked at one point, something along the lines of, you know, I, what do I know about a, a black kid going swimming? So this is horrible all the way around, absolutely all the way around. But the reason that I bring it up is it illustrates, again, the, uh, the violence that's taking place between the two races at the time, but it also illustrates the, um, the the next thing I want to show you. And that is that his body, which again had been in the water and was uh, barely recognizable, I mean, just absolutely barely recognizable, his mother wanted to bury it in the North and they wanted to bury it in the South. And, you know, she insisted, no, 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 bring it back to the North. So they did on the understanding that she would just, you know, quietly bury her son. She did not quietly bury her son. What she instead did is put him on public display. And um, thousands and thousands of people came to see him and to pay respects. And uh, that image made it into the press. And that's the next thing that I want to point out. So, you know, we get to Brown versus the Board of Education. We get to situations like Emmett Till. And that actually becomes part of the, the solution. That becomes how things start to move forward. Rather than talking about a lot of very specific information, I, again, I'm trying to be somewhat broad here because I want you to see what I, I think explains the entire situation. And so the solution then becomes the press, that these stories begin to make it into the press. Prior to this, uh, when you know race riots and things like that would make it into the, the national news, the response was more or less the same. Oh, well, these are outside agitators. The people here are not like that. And the North could ignore it. And the world could kind of, you know, stick its fingers in its collective ears and just ignore it. 
But then we reach this point where um, images become widely available and uh, where those images begin to trump some of the, the other contrary uh, literature and imagery that is emerging at this time. Again, something like Gone with the Wind that romanticizes the entire situation. So when you have uh, you know, a body like Emmett Till's on display, it's very difficult for people to say, oh, well, you know, bad things don't happen down there because bad things clearly do. Um, also, when we get to someone like Rosa Parks, Rosa Parks, it, you know, I know you're familiar with that image, her mugshot, but you go back and really look at it because this was a profound thing. She does not look like an agitator. She looks like somebody's grandmother who's going to bake you an apple pie and then, you know, tuck you into bed. She looks like a very kindly person. And so for that old lie of, oh, these are outside agitators and professional agitators couldn't continue to exist in that sort of environment because again you know you have all these contradictory images that begin to emerge that uh speak against things like um you know disney's song of the south and uh, gone with the wind and you have marches that begin, you know that are taking place uh when we get to really the 1960s with uh, martin luther king jr uh, you have malcolm x out there in the front saying, you know, these things are wrong and speaking in a very powerful way that makes, again, white people uncomfortable at this time. Um, and that is still very challenging to read even to the present. If you haven't read Malcolm X's biography, I highly recommend it. It is uh, very readable and it's very challenging. And it's one of the few books that I've ever read that I, you know, I put it down and I was mad. And then I had to sit there and think about why I was mad. And then I had to think about what I could do to solve it because, um, he was a brilliant man and he absolutely challenged my way of thinking uh, you know, about the past and about um, how we could all work together. That was part of his journey as well. So the, again, those images emerge. There's one other story I want to mention here. Um, it comes from, uh, I believe I first heard it on NPR, but it was the, um, the actress, Michelle uh, uh, Nichols, who played uh, Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek. And I, I think that this is a nice little capstone to the point I'm making right here. And this was that, you know, she's on this hokey TV show, Star Trek, and, you know, there are all these people traveling around in outer space. And I mean, I, I know it's really easy today to look back and say, ah, who cares? I mean, this is just, you know, hokey science fiction, but it's not. It's, it's absolutely not. It's a cultural milestone. It's a, it's a significant step forward. So the story is that uh, she was she was on this show and she did the first season and she just thought, you know, I'm a serious actress. I don't want to do this. This is ridiculous. I have to dress up in this little skirt and you know, I have to hang out on a bridge with a, a bunch of other people. I would rather be taken seriously as an actress. And so she decided she was going to quit. And she talked to Gene Roddenberry and you know, basically said that, you know, I, I think I'm just done with the show. Sorry. And she uh, went to a national event and, you know, at this point she's a celebrity and she goes in and she is taken to a table and she sits down and somebody walks over and says, hey, there's somebody that would like to meet you. And there's a big fan. And she said, you know, okay, sure, whatever. You know, I get fans all the time. Well, Martin Luther King Jr. walks over to her and says, you know, hey, I'm a big fan of your show. My kids and I, you know, and I, we, we watch your show all the time. We see you on there. And it, it's just so great to see an African-American actress on a show with, the, you know, alongside standing as an equal and as a peer with all the other individuals on the show. And she said, oh, it, you know, 
Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. But I, you know, I hate to tell you, I'm about to quit the show. I just, I want to be taken seriously as an actress. And apparently he sat down and looked her straight in the eyes and said, you absolutely cannot quit because what you're doing is important to all the efforts that we're making right now. We need representation. We need to see people that look like us on TV. And you're on a TV show where, again, you're standing alongside white people and you're being treated as an equal. And that matters. You cannot quit that show. And so she went back to Gene Roddenberry and said, uh, hey, you know, I, actually, I changed my mind. I want to stay on this show. And he said, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. So uh, the show didn't run for very long. It, it did get itself in some trouble over um, some controversial issues tied to race. But that shows the power that the media had during this time period. And, you know, again, go back and look at all the, the photographs you've seen before that you're probably numb to. People being shot with, uh, with fire hoses. Uh, people being attacked by police dogs. And then think about that context and think about it from that perspective. Again, you've seen these images your entire life. Um, uh, let's see, uh, Elizabeth uh, Hazel Masary and Elizabeth Eckford, that famous picture where you have the, the white girl yelling at the, the black girl who's just you know, very quietly uh, with a dignified demeanor trying to go to school, to class. Those images challenged that traditional narrative and undermined it to the point where it could no longer exist. Okay, let me clarify one thing from that last point, and then I'm going to tell the, the last part of this podcast, the, the last narrative portion that I want to present. Uh, I'm not saying that the imagery solved everything, but I am saying that it, it uh, showed that it was a lie that these were professional agitators. Okay, the last thing that I want to point out is I'm going to weave together some threads that I've been giving really for many episodes now. And I'm going to make an argument. Uh, and if you disagree with the argument, I at least want you to think about why you disagree with the argument and what kinds of evidence you could summon to the contrary. And the argument is this. You had white individuals living in inner city environments for a long time in the South. They would live um, in the downtown locations. And then uh, with the advent of the automobile, they began to move to the suburbs. And so they, they left these inner city environments. And leaving them, the supply, the, the law of supply and demand said that it says that when something is no longer desirable, the, the price of it falls, right? So if nobody really wants gold anymore, then the price of gold is going to plummet. So the real estate in these inner city environments began to plummet. And African-Americans do not uh, have access to the best jobs because they're not allowed to have access to the best jobs. And so they began to take up uh, positions in these inter inner city environments. Now, because also, again, they don't have access to the best positions, uh, this ties back to some of the gender roles that I had discussed before that I had sort of gently alluded to. And that is that, um, you know, there's this sort of gender role that uh, African-American males would adopt at this time. If I can't work inside the system, then I will beat the system. Um, I will try to outsmart the system. Um, this is tied in a little bit with things like Invisible Man. Um, and uh, I believe Richard Wright refers to it in Black Boy as well. But I, you know, I'm going to beat the system. I'm going to outsmart the system. And so they begin to work against the system or work you know, outside of it or what have you. <clears throat> One way to be able to do that is uh, through illicit uh, trade. Uh, whether it be something like moonshine or or eventually something like drugs. And so drugs begin to emerge in this community. 
when young men are growing up and they're saying, you know, their um, their elders either you know maybe make money in this or be arrested and, and thrown in jail, they begin to think that that's their future as well. And uh, then we reach the point where we get to something like the 1970s and 1980s, um, where the the war on drugs really kicks into gear, and the, you know with Reagan and whatnot. Um, when that kicks into gear, not only are they these young men now seeing um, older men being arrested, um, they themselves are being arrested. You know, sometimes whether they're involved in the trade or not, there are many instances in which, again, young African American men are uh, incarcerated when they had done nothing wrong and then they are given a criminal record. Um, that criminal record tracks them inside the system. And when it tracks them inside the system, um, I mean, just to be blunt, we have uh, more more individuals now in jail than we do uh, than we did have slaves prior to the American Civil War. That's my argument. It, my argument is that um, this cycle of poverty and incarceration and um, uh, gender roles that people are growing up seeing inside of these communities has trapped these communities. And that's one of the reasons why in thinking about all the history that we've covered at this point, um, you, you can't, I don't think, make the argument that, oh, if you just work really hard, you can break out of these systems. As you can see, there's a long history associated with these systems that have trapped individuals into the, these cycles that makes it um, just nearly impossible to get out of those systems. It's not a matter of hard work. It's a matter of the system is designed against those, those persons. Um, if you're familiar with you know, a lot of background information, you're, you're probably hearing in this, yes, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, it was definitely part of that argument, but also uh, several other textbooks and history as well that I've read. In fact, when I was reading Michelle Alexander's book, I, you know, I, I thought, oh, wow, this is, this is good. This is very much like the argument I've been making in some of my classes for, for a long time, but she just adds more to, you know, to some of the things that I've been doing. So that's the argument I would make. Um, I, I hope now that you've listened to this history and, and seen some of the broad strokes of, of your history and, and thought about gender roles and as a part of this podcast, that you can see that this is the case. And, and again, if you listen to this and you're thinking, I disagree, that's not true. Well, think about why, and then go and do some research to better understand your position. That's the same challenge I always give to people uh, whenever I discuss this subject. And uh, I think that's a fair challenge. I'm, I'm telling you that, you know, maybe I'm not right. And if I'm not right, then make sure you go and understand why I'm not right. That brings me to the end of a, another long episode. Um, the rest of the episodes, I, I think, in this series will not be as long as these have been. But there's a lot of information here to cover. And in all the years that I've been doing this, I have seen countless people come through my classroom that just do not understand this history. And so I, again, try to give it as short as I could and broad strokes as I could. But as part of that and the series of four episodes that I've been doing right now on race, I wanted to supply reasons why we need to talk about this and how we need to talk about this and how we need to think about it and how we need to listen to each other. And I hope now you can see that I have uh, very carefully plotted out all the episodes to this point so that that way when you reach this episode and some of the things I've discussed in it, you can understand the historical context and enough to be able to see you know, why 
we must still take the this topic seriously and we must work together we cannot do it alone one community cannot do it on its own we must all work together in order to move beyond this and this is one of the the only times i'll, I'll sort of break character i guess so to speak which is um you know I, I just try to present this information dispassionately but it's important it is important and i, and I do think it's worth you know, breaking out of just being as dispassionate as possible this is not something that we can uh, we can just ignore this is not something that has gone away um, some of the things that I've discussed in this episode are things that have occurred within living memory. And if you go and talk to you know, people who were alive during that time period, they will tell you their stories because they have witnessed them. Again, not every single person is going to have a story. Not every single person is going to have seen something, but many of them did. And many of them um, could tell you stories if you just ask, if they're willing to talk about them. And that means that the history that we have been covering is still alive and has an impact on the present and we cannot again cannot just ignore that and hope that it will go away we must confront it we must acknowledge it and then we must uh, work against the the long strand of history that comes into the present the next episodes in this series are going to be on music because i think that music is a little bit of a lighter topic um, there are some other very difficult things to talk about with music as well but um, that i hope will you know, start to move us back out of the subject and into um, some other aspects of the American South. See you then.